BFG people, hello and welcome to episode 184 of Blockchain Insider. I'm Mauricio Magaldi, Global Strategy Director for Crypto at 11FS, and I'm joined by my co-host, the amazing Kai Sheffield, head of Crypto Visa. How are you doing today, Kai? Anything exciting you've been seeing or working lately? I, I am fantastic. Just when I thought like the space couldn't move any faster, it, it's moving faster than it ever has. Now you have AI, my whole Twitter <laughs> feed is filled with GPT-4, and so, so many things to talk about. Let's get into the show. <laughs> Absolutely. It's going to be a great conversation. So today's new show is a very exciting show. Our main stories are the first CK EVM that goes live on Ethereum, a recap on the USDC SVB saga, and Coinbase's SEC Wells Notice. To dig into this, we're also joined by some fantastic guests making a debut on the show specifically. We have Jenna Ayo, Director of Financial Policy at the Chamber of Progress. How are you doing today, Jenna? Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So glad to be here with you all today. Good. Another debut, we welcome Filippo Kizari, Web3 Strategic Advisor. How are you doing today, Filippo? Welcome to the show. I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. How are you doing today? Good, great. It's a pleasure to have you both with us. So before we dive in, just as a reminder to the listeners, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the companies that they are representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. So do your own research. So let's get started. We kick off with the first EKVM to go live on Ethereum. Matter Labs recently opened an access to its Layer 2 network ZK Sync era to the wider public, marking the launch of the first ZKVM on the Ethereum blockchain. ZK Sync era is a Layer 2 network that uses zero-knowledge proofs to batch transactions together and record them on the Ethereum network. As a Layer 2 network, it enables faster transactions with lower fees, it provides additional features like native account abstraction. ZKERA does not currently have a token and will gradually hand control of the network over to its community as it moves to a decentralized network in about a year. So this is big news. We've anticipated the year of the ZK on our predictions episode earlier this year between Kai and myself. So let's, let's kick it off. Kai, why is this an important development for blockchains in general? Yeah, I, I think it's really the, the spring and summer of scaling. You know, it's just awesome to see how much technical innovation is happening in the space uh, with new layer two uh, networks on top of Ethereum with alternative layer ones. And what's fascinating is they're each taking different approaches. They're, you know, using different technologies with different trade-offs. Uh, and so, you know, ZK Sync, you know, using this concept of ZK rollups or validity proofs, which is different than what you know, Optimism and Arbitrum are doing. And so it's it's fascinating. And so I look at this period of time right now, it's like this transition from dial-up to broadband where blockchains are starting to scale, but we don't know what broadband's going to win. And so it's like this protocol war where you have all of these talented teams that are brilliant that are starting to ship real products that consumers can use. And I don't know what's going to happen. I ask all the smartest people, like, who's going to win? Like, what's the best layer two? And like, it should be optimistic. And they're like, I don't know. Like, it's just, you got to just have to follow and play around with them. And I think there are going to be many different factors that drive adoption and distribution. But it starts with just new innovations at the infrastructure layer in scaling blockchains that are they're coming online on a weekly basis. 
And the fact that this is a ZK EVM-based network, meaning that the engine that processes the transactions is always is also batching these transactions altogether, gives it a little further edge into that scalability function. Jenna, uh, off to you now. What do you think that this means in the grand scheme of things? And and why would you know, in your opinion, as, as Kai said, why would you think that one is better than the other? Well, I think um, just looking at, uh, Kai mentioned uh, protocol wars. I think at the end of the day, the person that benefits from this the most is the consumer because they're able to see which protocol they want to participate in. And with this new development, it'll increase adoption for people who may have been on the fence about, you know, getting into the crypto space now that knowing that this um, this development will allow scalability, it'll allow increased security for transactions, um, and also reducing transaction costs um, on Ethereum. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, the consumer is the person that will benefit from this competition. And and hopefully this will increase more adoption for for um, the Ethereum blockchain. Filippo, on, on your end, what does this mean to builders everywhere? So I actually wanted to, in relation to, you know, the the what you asked about the builders, I actually wanted to disagree with what Janae was saying, I think that, you know, you know I, I actually think that consumers won't benefit from this because, you know, we're in the midst of a, of a protocol war in a way, just like you said. And I think it is very clear who is going to win. I don't necessarily think that, you know, all, all the protocols are competing for the same things. And if you look at, you know, what they're proposing, they're proposing cheaper gas fees, faster transactions, scalability, security, you know, they're all kind of in the same category. And the truth is very little is being done to kind of ensure scalability, true scalability of, of the ventures, right? And I think that this kind of shows the preponderance of, of Polygon and in a way also, um, you know, Ethereum, because, uh, you know, obviously they're kind of working together. And I think that, you know, it was, um, it, it was the Polygon's um, co-founder who said that this is going to be kind of the holy grail of Web3 infrastructure because it's going to have the major properties um, of scalability, security, and Ethereum comp compatibility, which is, you know, what we're, you know, if we look at how the, how the space is divided, it, it is very clear that Ethereum is taking, you know, it's kind of taken over and it's dominating Polygon as a, as a, as a, a small brother, sister, cousin, whatever you want to call it, is kind of coming together. And then the others are trying to catch up, you know, with everything that they're trying to do. But it's just, I, I think that we're, we're at a place where there is too much gap at the moment. Uh, I feel. So yeah, I think that this has reinforced that gap even more. I think it could be helpful for the listeners to just like take a step back at this, this term of EVM compatibility. Like you, you might have you know, heard it before, you're probably going to hear it again. And just, I think one of the biggest questions in these protocol wars is how important is EVM compatibility? Like it's very clear that Ethereum has, I would, I would argue has gotten product market fit in a number of areas, you know, from DeFi to NFTs to stable coins, like there's significant demand for the Ethereum blockchain, but it doesn't scale today. There's a lot of infrastructure and a lot of developers who have been building products on top of Ethereum. And so the question around EVM compatibility is, if you build a scalable, a broadband network, do you want it to natively support everything that's been built on top of Ethereum? And some people would say, yes, that's critical because that's where all the tooling, that's where all the developers, it's where all the infrastructure is. It should be just like Ethereum, but it should scale. And then there's another school of thought saying, wait a minute, like we're so early. There aren't that many developers. There are not that many things have been built. E EVM and like Solidity, like ah, there's some bugs. It's kind of hard to use sometimes. 
And so let's design a new language. Let's do something that's better and bring in new developers to build things on top of it instead of just trying to bring the Ethereum developers over. And so I think this is one of the core questions of like in the future for adoption of scalable blockchains that power mainstream applications, will they be EVM based or will it be something brand new that that is just starting or, or doesn't exist yet? Uh, and it's going to be really interesting to see what developers you know, gravitate towards. I, I really like that that thinking because, the you know, I've been in, in my earlier childhood and, and teen years, I've been a gamer. And when a new console launched, you were always wondering whether there was going to be backward compatibility with the games that you had bought or, you know, earned or whatever. And I think that's the same feeling, right? We're, we're in this middle of the technology um, evolution in ways that uh, there isn't a clear winner for any of this. And, and maybe diversity is where we should be uh, aiming at at this stage for the things that haven't been solved yet. And let's not take it for granted that there's a bunch of stuff that we did that are great, but we also created a bunch of problems that the technology itself cannot solve at this stage. So new technology might need to be uh, coming into play. I really wanted to touch upon the account abstraction feature that's coming with uh, ZK Sync era. And they maybe come back to that discussion of whether end users gain or don't gain based on that. Because I think account abstraction is one of those things on the uh, recent evolution of the Ethereum ecosystem that really drives home the message that we need to fix UX. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with you first, Filippo. What do you think that this represents in terms of uh, the path forward in terms of um, expanding adoption. Is this the right path to go? I'm not sure if it's the right path to go, to be honest, but I do think that anything that is that kind of facilitates, like you said, UX UI is, is a major winner, right? I think that this is something that we have not gotten wrong. We, we, we've not gotten this, like we haven't nailed this just yet as a space. I think nobody has. Honestly, like I, I you know, with, with all due respect to everyone who is building in our space, we all have not gotten that yet. I don't think enough research has been done about this even. You know, I, I, why, why is it that DeFi solutions have like 246 steps to be able to onboard onto like that, that, that you know, that doesn't sound right. And, you know, um, account abstraction could potentially enable the next phase um, of UX UI. But again, you know, like I said, anything that focuses on that or emphasizes that, if, if we were to classify the three major things that push forward adoption, I would say, you know, UX UI is the basis. And then on top of that, um, I would say it's safety. And then on top of that, I would say it's education. And, and although people seem to think it's always education, UX UI is, you know, the most intuitive thing. The reason why, for example, without digressing too much, the reason why the most simple products we use every day, just like the iPhone were so successful is because they managed to transfer the UX UI from, you know, multiple keyboard buttons to one simple button. There was actually research that was done to, you know, for, with five-year-olds to see, okay, is our five-year-olds converging their attention to that single button at the bottom of the, of the iPhone? Research was done for that. So I think that this, you know, account abstraction is the beginning, so to speak, of the research of the testing in our space to see what the one button is or the equivalent of the one button is for the UX UI and blockchain. So yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if um, that resonates with you guys, but. I just wanted to add that I think account abstraction is is really helpful when it comes to bringing people onto crypto, um, you know, just for them accessing 
their blockchains. And I think education, like Filippo said, is very important. But I do think that, you know, some of these new features that account extraction would enable, which is, you know, recovering your account if you lose your keys. I mean, these are some things that are built into just basic crypto education right now where you have to have, you know, your your uh, keys, your, your code um, stored somewhere safe, you know, but when you have these you know, benefits coming up that are updates, you know, that are around smart contract wallets, I think, you know, a kind of education, the education aspect may have to be tweaked a little bit to make sure that everybody understands what some of these new features and, and technological advances are doing to the blockchain. Agreed. No, that's, yeah, I, I love that. I could spend the days here, but we can't, we don't have that time. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Kai, for our next story. So a lot of drama around stablecoins. And so week of, of, I believe it was weekend of March 10th, which feels like it was like months ago, like so long ago, but it was only a month ago uh, with everything happening with SVB and you know the issues that it had, I spent my weekend watching the chart of USDC, uh, which is something I wouldn't have expected to do on a weekend. It's, it's not normal, my normal weekend isn't watching a, a stablecoin you know, price chart. Or, or at all, because it's a stable coin. <laughs> Be, because I, I, but I had to, because I looked at it and said, okay, why is USDC, you know, trading at 88 cents, you know, on, on markets? And so this was a fascinating period of time and test, you know, for the stable coin industry and for USDC. Uh, I think the the short summary, and then want to open up and get reflecting the observations, was that Circle acknowledged that they were using SVB as one of their bank partners. And so they had about $3.3 billion uh, in SVB. And so when SVB went into receivership, you know, they were not able to access that $3.3 billion. And so of the $40 billion or so of USDC in circulation, there was concern that you know, $3.3 billion wasn't able to be accessed. And would they get access to it? And when would they get access to it? Uh, and so the same way that people who were depositors of SVB were concerned. And you know, I saw stories on Twitter of you know fintechs selling deposit certificates for 90 cents on the dollar, you know, not knowing if they were going to get you know the funds out of SVB you know, the next week for payroll. There were people who were selling USDC for 88, 90 cents on the dollar, not knowing if Circle would be able to get the funds back. And so Circle communicated you know, throughout the process. They mentioned that they'd be willing to backstop USDC you know, if they're not able to get the funds. You know, the Fed you know, in the FDIC steps in on Sunday. Um, everyone's going to be made whole. Then we saw USDC you know, effectively go back to trading at, at par and circle open business on Monday and redeemed, uh, I think it was close to $2.9 billion of USDC for USD. So one of the most dramatic weekends, not just, you know, of course, very dramatic for banking, but for stable coins. Maybe let me let me start with with you, uh, Janae, from from just like the policy perspective. You know, were you spending your weekend watching? Like, what what were some of your reactions and reflections of of what this meant for the industry? I would say my first takeaway was you have so many regulators in the United States going out of their way to, you know, ostracize crypto, um, and you know, trying their best to separate crypto from banking, but banking, you know. Based on this whole situation that we saw with Circle, I think banking is the the problem here when it comes to crypto. Um, you know, we have to think about how we can mitigate risk in crypto. Um, you know, when it comes to these banks, and I think the biggest problem is, um, you know, after I, I think five or six p.m., you know, banks stop 
sending money. They stop wiring money back and forth to each other. Um, that's based on our Fed wire system. And after, you know, when things like this happen over the weekend, the bank isn't sending money, you know, around to help, you know, mitigate the situation. So Circle, you know, was stuck because they were stuck with losing its peg um, until Monday when they could start regaining regaining that that full backing again. So I think that's a problem that, you know, we have. I don't know if that's a regulatory issue. I think it's just we have outdated technology in our banking infrastructure. Um, but I do think that, you know, the United States needs to work on a proper regulatory framework when it comes to stable coins and, and banks that work with stable coins. And I think, um, you know, the, the collapse of Signature Bank, you know, was a big sign that, you know, there is a lot more work that needs to be done with banks, you know, working with crypto. Um, I remember seeing over the weekend, Barney Frank, not over this weekend, but when this happened, uh, Barney Frank uh, mentioned that, you know, the, the collapse of Signature Bank and the, the seizure of it by New York was a political move. It wasn't necessarily the bank failing. Um, so I think there there needs to be a lot more um, work done with our banking infrastructure to make sure that it's strong enough you know, to, um, you know, work with and provide services for crypto. But I, I think, you know, crypto, do we really even need banking infrastructure anyway? I mean, that's that's one another takeaway that I that I started thinking about after that whole weekend. You know, do we even need it? And, and then, Filippo, we, we'd love your perspective and reaction on this and particularly the role that Silvergate and Signature played. And so maybe what were the implications of, yeah, I didn't even mention that it wasn't just SVB. It was, you know, two of the biggest banks that serve the crypto industry and Signature and Silvergate, you know, had, you know, issues Silvergate before and Signature around the same time. And so kind of what, what was going through your mind during the weekend as you were observing it, and particularly with reference to, to the other banks? What was going through my mind was, well, one, the first question you already asked is like, how is regulation going to change based on this? Like, what is going to come in to stop this? wildness from happening um, and will it benefit us or will it hurt us long term right and the second thing i would you know that i was thinking was well you know how, how are crypto firms going to go you know how is blockchain in the financial sector or financial services industry going to be taken from now on like how will not only just you know the crypto space like how how will blockchain be affected by this uh, and i think it's it's quite obvious you know that i think it was uh, last week some stats were released i actually published them a few days ago um, that you know the adoption of blockchain by by and also investment has been heavily affected by what has happened um, and so you know i think also with everything that's happening from the government side of you know some of some of the governments trying to set up their own stable coins i'm not sure this is the topic we want to get into but you know at, at the end of the day i think we can all say that it has affected the space negatively in the short term but I also have faith that in the long term, the space and the wider public will see that just like uh, Janae said, banks are becoming redundant. Our traditional, you know, our, our TradFi kind of models are, are, be, are becoming redundant. And so, um, you know, it's time for us to move on to the next stage in evolution of the financial sector and all other sectors that are kind of heavily reliant on it. So, yeah. And Mauricio, how did you think Circle did throughout the process? Like, what was your reaction? And, and talking to people, like, 
are people more likely to use or trust USDC, less likely? Like, what, what do you think some of the implications are you know, coming out of this around how people, particularly the market and the industry, would view Circle and, and USDC? Oh, that's, that's a great question, because one of the things that hit me during that weekend was that Circle was being victim to transparency, because the other major stablecoin who doesn't provide as much transparency on their reserves was actually trading above bag. And it was just weird to see USDC trading 20, you know, it, it fell to, I think, $82, 82 cents on the dollar. And then uh, the other one, uh, Tether, was trading above bag. And people were actually creating strategies over the weekend to monetize buying USDC on the low and selling Tether on the high. And it was crazy to see that with stablecoins. It felt like emerging markets affects desk for a minute there. And, and to be uh, completely clear, I think they did really well in being transparent because that puts minds at ease, that there is someone that is speaking to the community, uh, ensuring that things are going to be uh, returned to normal. Uh, regulators, uh, I understand, read crypto Twitter as well. So they saw Jeremy's and Dante's uh, communications there. So I think that was that was very adult of them. And I wouldn't expect less from from these folks uh, being uh, them uh, who they are. So I think that was a, uh, an interesting positioning. But in the larger scheme of things, I I really think that we're in this weird transitional period between nobody wanting to touch crypto on one end and then everyone being in crypto on the other. What I think is a miss from the regulators, and I, I want to just go back to the education bit that both Janae and, and Filippo mentioned on the, on the previous story, is that there's got to be education to legislators and regulators as well, because I think they're, they're just losing the big opportunity of using crypto as an infrastructure to become better regulators to become better at oversight. And the reason why we were able to see everything happening with Circle is because we saw what's happening on the blockchain. And if if banks were in the blockchain with their quirky and complex and, 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 and currently obscure products and services, then maybe the regulators would have a, you know, a much less uh, harder of a time uh, overseeing the activities they, they, than they currently do. I, I wrote extensively about on-chain supervision. And I think that's just a wasted opportunity. And I would hope that this type of episode would give the regulators a little bit more of nuance of what would be possible if banking was on-chain. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I feel like it's it's almost like if, if you play out the game theory of a digital bank run in the Twitter age, which we saw in real time, like it's the first time my... My adult life, like seeing a bank run, it's terrifying. Uh, and so it's not like people lining up at the bank now. It's like, you know, tweets going viral. Like that's that's a different type of a, a bank run. And as you read those tweets, like if you hold money in a bank that there's a viral tweet that people are concerned about, it's very easy for someone to just move over to their mobile app and just withdraw. Like it's just like you don't know what everyone else is doing. And so you could say, oh, I'm going to hold strong because I want to support the bank. But if everyone else withdraws, you could be in trouble. And so because there isn't transparency of what the wire withdrawal queue is, you better make sure that you're in that queue. And it creates this self-reinforcing behavior. 
What's very fascinating to me about stablecoins is when you see the on-chain data, you see what the market value, what it's trading at, you know, on the secondary, you see what the on-chain activity is, who's selling, who's holding. You have more information where you can see the board. And so you don't have to just rush and say, I got to get out. Uh, and you could actually analyze it and calculate it. And I, in, in a way, you may, potentially there could be less runs when you have that, that data. So that, that's a great point. I bet we're way over on this story. We can talk about this for hours. It's a fascinating topic. You want to go to a break or go to the next story? Yeah, let's just jump on the break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibilities, and Visa's helping everyone take part. Consumers can now enjoy the freedom and flexibility of using their Visa crypto link cards for everyday purchases at millions of Visa-accepting merchant locations around the world. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Buying a home is the biggest and most significant purchase most people make in their lifetime. And it doesn't matter where in the world you're buying, the process is rarely easy. In our latest report, experts from our 11FS Ventures team look at why the home buying process is broken, how we can fix it, and the massive commercial opportunity it presents for banks and fintechs. Download your free copy at 11FS.com slash homebuying. That's 11FS.com slash homebuying. For the second half of the show, we're going to start off with the Coinbase SEC Wells Notice. So the SEC, it's a security regulator in the U.S., issued uh, to Coinbase, the crypto exchange, something called a Wells Notice. It's a warning that the exchange has been identified performing potential violations against the U.S. securities law. Coinbase said that the warning wouldn't mean any changes to what they currently do in terms of products and services. This notice is the second warning from the SEC to a crypto entity after a February notice to Paxos, the stablecoin issuer associated with Binance, which we covered here in the show as well. Uh, after this news broke, Coinbase shares uh, fell nearly 12% uh, in extended trading, adding to an 8.16% drop during regular trading hours. Coinbase is an SEC-approved listed company whose IPO was in 2022, so not too long ago. So in terms of regulation, and in the case of the SEC, regulation by enforcement, this has been shown as a pattern since the uh, occurrences from last year. This has been increasing more and more. Is, is this how we get rid of crypto problems, Janae? Is this the path to clean up the industry? What would be the alternative to that? Well, you know, I think the regulation by enforcement, you know, is, is a way that Gary Gensler is trying to, you know, eliminate um, the threat of crypto in the United States. And I don't agree with this. I don't think this is the best way to develop policy. I think, you know, the best way is to develop appropriate rules and, you know, solicit feedback from everybody involved, have a democratic rulemaking process, but he does not want to do that. So he is, you know, issuing Wells notices and and um, putting out enforcement actions and doesn't really seem to care when, you know, companies in the industry are saying, hey, we'll go abroad if this continues to happen. So I feel that he is trying to um, enforce crypto away. 
uh, from the United States, which is, you know, it's it's a problem because, you know, the United States will eventually be behind uh, when it comes to setting appropriate rulemaking th- standards for citizens and consumers to operate and use crypto appropriately in the country. So we've seen conversations on past instances where people say, well, we're trying to get into the regulator and to have a meeting, but we're not being seen. We don't have the time of the day. And I've said this before in in other episodes, I wouldn't want to be on a financial regulator right now because it's really hard. They are understaffed and the complexity of things that are coming their way is not getting, you know, any less complex. So, uh, Filippo, have you ever thought about, you know, what would be required you know, for these regulators to get on with the times. I mean, you you made fairly good points in terms of what would be necessary to unlock Web3 adoption in general. What would be the role of the regulator in that context? So I think the regulator has a responsibility, right? You mentioned it yourself, uh, or some of you mentioned it. I think it is the, um, you know, a way to go forward is to bridge decentralized, you know, infrastructure, with you know some of the centralized society that we live in, right? Uh, but I think you know you, you also um, what you said before. Very often, regulators, or rather, you know, people that are kind of moving things in the space, are not being listened to. And I think that there's, like you said, you know, I think the regulation, the regulators are you know very busy and they're in a difficult position. But at the same time, there's a lack of education, I think, and and in a way that is that gap is not being bridged either. In fact. If you look at what uh, the you know the coin the whole Coinbase uh, thing, uh, Coinbase actually um, you know they they have requested to have a conversation. They actually sent documentation over, and that documentation for those that are looking at the case a bit closer has kind of been ignored in a way. They just you know they didn't even respond to it. And I, I think that you know regulators are in a difficult position because you know again in the Coinbase uh, instance. They're kind of saying, okay, well, some some of the assets that are here are classified as securities. Well, well, are they really? I mean, there's no since this is a new thing, the way to kind of classify assets as securities to say, okay, how does this behave? Does this behave as a security? Does it not behave as a security? Um, and that's kind of you know that there's this there's this um, I think it was Einstein that said that you know the same thinking that created the problem won't be able to come up with a solution. Right, so so there is no point in trying to find a solution to this from from the regulator standpoint by using the the same frameworks that have already been used before. What should be happening is a real conversation, an open conversation between those that have built the pillars of decentralization and what is happening at an institutional level to say, okay, this behaves as as this, that behaves as that, and that's how we're going to classify it for everyone. And you know, once that kind of framework is in place. We can start behaving in a way that's fair for everyone, and the wider public will start seeing the benefits of, you know, decentralization. So yeah, I'm not sure if um, this resonates with anybody, but I feel like m- most regulators are aware of crypto and they understand its inner workings. I just feel like they are are more um, predisposed to protect incumbents that are already in the space that are threatened by crypto, and so I feel like you know there have been many opportunities for you know them to learn and engage, but and it's not like industry isn't willing to meet with them and talk to them. I just feel like, you know, they're just not interested in in embracing this new technology and supporting, you know, smaller companies from developing and, and thriving in this space. They kind of want to take this technology and, and give it to incumbents who they already know very well. 
I don't necessarily agree. I think that, you know, some of the, um, some of the things that are being done, um, you know, just besides the U.S., some of the most, you know, kind of influential crypto hubs out there today, especially specifically in Europe, you know, since also Mauritius in London and London's trying to become or has been, has pledged to become the major crypto hub in, in Europe. You know, at the moment, it's competing against text-friendly um, Portugal. And I just want to use the use case of Portugal to say how to, to expose how easy it is to create loopholes within the system because of a lack of education from the institutional side. So, you know, Portugal used to be, you know, there used to be no taxation on, on uh, capital gains of crypto up until uh, last year. And now this year they've introduced it and they can actually go four years back to kind of, you know, see, see what's going on. So some people are, are, are really screwed. But, um, but what they did leave as a loophole is basically you being able to, to work in NFTs. So if I'm paying people in NFTs, and I am getting paid in NFTs and I'm doing everything in NFTs and my transactions are happening in non-fungible instead of fungible, I'm essentially able to, to kind of, you know, scan the entire tax system. And that is literally because they were so, so fixated on getting the law out as soon as possible without actually um, confiding in the wealth of knowledge that was there. Um, and, and, you know, it, it feels like this is happening in, you know, it's happening with the UK where they're trying to kind of, push out the Bitcoin as quickly as possible without, without listening to, to, to some of the, uh, some of the uh, people that are influenced in the space. It is happening in the U.S. with this kind of high, hardliner approach. It's like, okay, we're going to cut everyone down. And just like you said, Janae, you know, some, you know th this is going to hurt um, the U.S. economy in the long term. And also, um, I think, you know, the, the VCs in general, like what, what are we talking about here? Like, I, think, I think that the Silicon Valley is, 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 is in deep trouble right now. Kai, any, any thoughts on that uh, space? Yeah, so my general personal opinion on, on the topic is that there's just, there's too much of this binary focus uh, from both regulators and the industry alike on whether a token is a security or not. As if like the token is exactly the same as a traditional stock. And so if it's a security, it should be treated exactly the same as an existing stock with the same disclosures, the same rules, and I think it's important for everyone to to take a step back and say, okay, what's what's the point of securities regulation? Like, what what is it trying to solve? It's trying to solve investor protection. And so, how can the industry and regulators work together to protect investors, whether or not a token is a security, and make sure that there are appropriate standards and that there are disclosures? And I think even if they are securities, they're probably going to have to be some different types of disclosures and standards than like how an existing stock works. And so the binary security or not is less important than whatever it is. How do you solve the problem of making sure that people understand important facts and data and things about the investment that they're making? Um, and so big shout out to Chris Brummer. Uh, you know, we did a podcast with him on like you know, disclosure standards. And so I think it's like, as an industry, we can't wait for regulators to tell us that we're the experts of the technology. We need to take it upon ourselves to say, how do we do a better job providing disclosures and transparency and protecting investors? And then as we do that, and as we show how that works and work with the, the regulators you know, together, I think that gets us to a better place than just getting in this binary war, security or not, without any nuance of how securities regulation is, is solving the problem. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I think the 
there's a, a principle here in the UK that I've learned by working with the FCA, which is um, same products, same rules, same risks, same regulatory outcomes. And that is a big principle for us because we can't have financial regulators regulating technology. It's not their expertise. They need to regulate the use case. And by going with you know, same risks and same regulatory outcomes, I think it's closer to their uh, the natural affinity that financial regulators would have uh, otherwise. But absolutely, it is a collaborative effort. We're not going to get out of this hut without putting all of these amazing brains to work together. Uh, I think that's all of the time we have for this story. So we're going to jump to the next section, which is where we want to take a look at a story that we didn't have time to cover, but definitely deserves a spotlight. Kai, that's on you today. What's this month's story? So Amazon is getting into NFTs reportedly and looking at NFTs tied to, to real world assets. Um, so my understanding is this is just from sources. Uh, there, there are kind of no formal reports uh, from Amazon you know, to, to date. Um, and so it's hard to tell what exactly this will be, but I, I think it says something that even in what is effectively the deepest bear market you know, that we've seen, major enterprises, one of the largest merchants and marketplaces in the world, are still investing in experimenting with new products around NFTs. And also interesting in the context of you know, seeing Meta in Instagram kind of ending support for NFTs and, and closing, shutting down some of their NFT features, while other enterprises like Amazon you know, reportedly you know, start to explore them. And, and I think, again, it's, it, NFTs are just a technology. Like, that's all it is. And I think many enterprises will look to explore these technologies in many different ways. Some won't see success and it won't make sense and they'll, they'll throw it away. Others, I think, will be phenomenally successful. So I'm excited to see how some of the traditional enterprises and, and merchants kind of get into NFT commerce and, and the approaches that they take. So for this last segment of today's show, we're going to bring the panel back in. And I want to take a look at what news and headlines have been grabbing your attention this month. So, Jenna, let's start with you. What is the one thing that has been grasping your attention and that you're excited about in the industry? Um, I So recently, uh, A16Z just issued their State of Crypto 2023 report. And so I've been really excited to um, see this report, read through it. And also, um, I saw that they unveiled a, a new crypto index that shows that adoption of cryptocurrency is outpacing the price performance. So I think that's something really interesting to watch. Awesome. Filippo, what's... Uh keeping you up at night. <laughs> uh, interesting. So what's keeping me up at night is actually um, the state of kind of investments um, in the venture fund world, um, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of my concern now um, since I'm going to quickly say this, um, we're launching a Web3 accelerator here in Lisbon and I've kind of been, been getting into this uh, more and more every day. And I, I just see, you know, the, the news seems to be around that um, there is no funding for Web3 at the moment. And AI is the cool kid in town. And, you know, that's, that's where everyone's reverting to. And when you talk to funds, that's what they want to hear. But the truth is some of the reports, for example, by KPMG that I've been released, I think I saw yesterday, are basically saying the opposite. So it, it's, I think it's the way to position it uh, with, with them specifically. And I think that, you know, many of the, you know, what is exciting to me is that many of the VCs are, are without using the metaverse buzzword, they are, they understand that, that that's where 
um, future generations of buyers are going to engage, right? That the ownable internet is 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 kind of where this is going, and whether you know generative AI is part of it or not, that's another story for you know the semantic searchability or, or or creativity. But the bottom line is, it is still going to happen in this interoperable sort of digital world. Um, and, and so you know, seeing that kind of long term goal, I feel that investment uh, funds are are placing their bets on that because they see that that is where the future is, is going and that this kind of, you know, the, the next iteration is inevitable. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, and some of the reports that have been released that actually, you know, kind of saying to all the naysayers, well, there's still, there's still those out there that believe in it and, and the space is going somewhere. So there you go. Absolutely. Kai, what's, what's the one exciting you about? Big week for Ethereum. You know, tomorrow we're on track for the Chappella upgrade uh so the the latest hard fork you know post post the merge and um it will effectively as as i understand it uh be enable withdrawals uh from people who've been staking uh running e2 validators uh, and i think that's a big deal like you know it started people who who are st who've been staking to date have taken a pretty significant risk depositing 32 eth to set up a validator not knowing when you'd be able to withdraw that 32 eth and so you're really on the frontier saying, I'm going to put 32 ETH with 50 plus thousand dollars in, and I don't know when I'm going to be able to get it back, but I'm going to secure the network and I'm going to earn some fees while I'm at it. Now, when you can actually withdraw that 32 ETH, it starts to get a lot more interesting for enterprises and professional firms to say, okay, I know I can put ETH in, I can perform a task, I can validate transactions, uh, I can generate revenue, and then I can take the ETH out. And so it looks like more of a uh, predictable a way to participate in the space. And so I think it's a big deal. And I think that there's a lot of momentum and energy in the Ethereum community. And, you know, with the successful merge, uh, another hard fork, which hopefully will, will be successful tomorrow, um, I think they're shipping. And and that that matters a lot. And they're, they're, they're proving that they can continue to upgrade uh, upgrade this protocol over time. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely great news. And I, I think I'm going to echo uh, Filippo's point and uh, just uh, highlight two uh, recent seed raises from uh, friends of the show. Maganab uh, and the team at Franklin Payroll raised $2.9 in the seed stage. Uh, they are a crypto payroll uh, hybrid with cash, so it's a pretty interesting product. And a uh, good friend of the show, Luca Prosperi, uh, launched uh, out of Stealth M0, a new DeFi protocol with a 22.5 million seed funding round. Uh, very significant. Uh, both uh, both companies super well backed uh, by by VCs and uh, with great teams all together. So yeah, um, for great products and great founders and great builders, we're seeing a lot of activity in the in the funding, uh, even if it's not equivalent of the, 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 the bull market, but for uh, great builders, I think uh, there's always uh, going to be capital. So that wraps up this week's news show. Uh, just as a quick reminder, again, I'll let you know that the views of our panels are their own and not necessarily the opinions of the companies that they're representing. Thank you all so much to our guests. Uh, where can people find more about you, Janae? You can find me on Twitter at JanaeEO. Just my first and last name. Filippo, where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? On my LinkedIn, Filippo Ghisari. And also I have launched a YouTube uh, news channel called Breaking Web 3. So check it out. Great. 
Uh, Kai. On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and Visa.com slash crypto. Great. You can find me on Twitter at Xerox Mauricio, on LinkedIn at Mauricio Magaldi, and obviously at 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.